Hello and welcome to Bridges and Bottlenecks, a new podcast series brought to you by Energy Voice Out Loud in partnership with DNV. DNV's UK Energy Transition Outlook predicts that the UK is not on track to achieve net zero. Technology exists that will be the bridge to take us there, but there are still a number of bottlenecks that stand in the way of progress. This series aims to tackle these challenges and highlight the opportunities in the energy transition. In this episode, we'll be looking at offshore wind, the challenges it faces through the energy transition, and the opportunities it can bring. I'm Ryan Duff, our Print Features Lead, and joining me in this discussion is DNV's Head of Renewables Department, Barbara Savini, and Danielle Lane, Director of Offshore Development UK and Ireland for RWE. I feel like this is quite a chunky topic. I mean, every one of them have been so far. Uh, you know, we're a good few episodes into this series now. In the intro, I said new podcast series, and maybe when we hit the halfway mark, it might not be considered so new anymore. But offshore wind, there's so much going on, right? You know, it's so much happening. There's headlines about sort of massive things happening just within the industry, within sort of industry trends every couple of days, let alone just sort of small development news updates. And so let's let's start there. So yeah, it's been a challenging time for offshore wind developers throughout the whole of this year. We've, we've seen a lot of news about a lack of grid connection, supply chain constraints, rising costs. But I think that the standout moment really, the, the, sort of, the thing that summarizes exactly the type of challenges we're facing, particularly in this country in the offshore wind space, was the uh, results of the allocation round five, you know, the no successful offshore wind projects. The government has uh, made an announcement to to try and correct that AR6, trying to sort of adjust prices to make them right for developers. How is that going to help developers looking at the next the next allocation round? Danielle, uh, as a as a developer, maybe it's uh, maybe this is one for you. Um, well, it's certainly been a roller coaster of a period for offshore wind. I think it's important to remember we've had some success still. I mean, we are now one of the largest renewable technologies in the UK and certainly set to grow. There's really big ambitions still from the UK government and indeed globally for the technology. I think specifically thinking about the last auctions, AR4 hasn't really brought anything forward yet in a big way, although who knows what will happen before the uh, milestone delivery date of those developers, um, which I think falls sometime in Q1 next year. But also we've seen um, the Vattenfall decision not to go ahead with the Boreas project that did win a CFD in AR4. And then, of course, as you mentioned, AR5 not bringing forward any offshore wind uh, projects. Although I do note that onshore and uh, some tidal were actually the beneficiaries of that in the last auction. What does that mean for us uh, and other developers for AR6? Well, I think on the upside, we've seen really positive movements from governments by um, acknowledging the challenges and they've set a much higher cap now for. AR6, which is um, about 66% higher than their previous one. So around £73 a megawatt hour. I think we have to remember, though, it's going to be a really competitive auction. There's a lot of capacity there now waiting to come forward. And that's the upside, of course. You know, we, we need the capacity to come through because we really want to see this next round being successful. 
I think the other thing to think about, though, is what happens when it does come through. We've got some really interesting things happening on the grid side with the government having accepted the Windsor recommendations and National Grid moving on the connection capacity issue. You know, there's a very big queue of um, projects wanting to get on. There's an argument that some aren't coming forward as quickly as possible. Um, So let's see what happens there. But also we have supply chain challenges. We've seen um, that the conditions that came about through factory shuttering during COVID to the higher interest rates and inflation and the general cost of living um, in that we saw more recently, and particularly that triggered by the Ukraine war when there was a whole, um, I suppose, urgency last this time last year um, when people were trying to address very high uh, commodity prices and the, the, how that flows through into the contracts. So there's still challenges that we've got to face, even if we do win a contract in the next auction round. But from a developer perspective, it's really encouraging to see the changes that have come through from the UK government for AR6. Good to hear. Yeah, the, I think the, the changes were much welcomed, you know, but the, Barbara, have you got anything to uh, jump in with? Yeah, I totally agree with Danielle. We were really looking forward for a, a positive message around the industry because we all feel it's so much needed um, renewables uh, in the world to achieve the zero. But we had many challenges recently, especially due to financial crisis, etc. And it's true what Danielle is saying about the supply chain having all sorts of issues as well themselves. Uh, we see a lot of wind turbine manufacturers as well recently where they struggle uh, with their financial performance for the same reason, increased cost in raw material and component that really undermined their ability to keep developing and investing. So the new message from the government, I really hope it, has, it will have also positive effect on them because they should feel more confidence now in the ability of those projects actually to be deployed and delivered maybe within certainty timescales as well. So hopefully that will unblock uh, their hesitation in investing in new facilities, for example, to build the new machines, because obviously there will be a lot of orders, I guess, on new wind turbine for them to be deployed and therefore unblock this cycle we've been in with the delays in supply chain and and difficulties as well in the suppliers. Also, I think from a wind turbine manufacturer point of view, there's been a rush in designing larger machines uh, because, of course, these are seen and welcome to reduce the cost of a wind farm, but equally that exposed them further uh, because we saw some large failures, especially in onshore wind, which of course had an impact on their financial performance and their ability of, uh, of moving forward, of, of investing further uh, with the construction. Um, also because building these large towers and large blades would require some innovation and it presents some technical challenges which will need investment. So we're kind of entering a spiral of, of difficulties for them. So hoping, hoping, hopefully all these uh, new messages and positive and reassurance and confidence in the industry will hold, also help them down the line. That's, that's really interesting. I just I want to dive into that a little bit more, Barbara, if you don't mind. But, you know, you're speaking about the, the supply chain and the, the constraints for uh, for manufacturers. And obviously, yes, the... the um, the, the struggles facing that area is also being uh, highlighted quite quite frequently. We, we started the episode speaking about the allocation round, which is obviously very UK focused. I just want a bit of clarification on your answer there. Was that 
was that more of a, a you know global supply chain comment or is this, is this maybe a more specific issue to the United Kingdom? No, I think in terms of the supply chain, it's really global because that there are not many players as wind turbine manufacturers, so they're serving, of course, globally the industry and, and we see them um, struggling uh, with the delivery and, and with the design. The failures they're having uh, have an impact on their and their performance and therefore uh, they, they have this uh, this um, problem in, in progressing with their innovation as well. So in a way, perhaps also um, discussing about what is best, and there have been some conversation around, is it best to keep growing? Is it best to keep uh, designing larger machine? Or should we pause a bit and consolidate around the design we already have? Try to make sure we are the risk in them, the investment from all different stakeholder perspective, and try to build on the capacity we already have in using those machines, maybe optimizing and driving the cost down while we still keep an eye on a longer-term development for larger machines. That, in a way, would also um, enable the supply chain that comes with the installation, so, for example, crane and vessels, to be there uh, to, to then install those machines. Of course, if you have larger structure, you will need different type of cranes and vessels, which also require investment and new designs and new facilities. So it's finding that right pace of consolidation and, and growth of the technology that hopefully we, we find the right balance in the industry and for the benefits of everyone. We've started the episode quite quick, right? We've started jumping straight into the challenges, but I mean, we've only touched on a couple and there are quite a lot of challenges in this in this sector. Um, you know, we touched on supply chain and uh, and of course uh, rising costs but there's also there's also grid connection that gets discussed quite a lot you know the Windsor report recently has highlighted the uh, the problems there and the uh, the overhaul that might be needed for the uh, the grid to to accompany all this uh, incoming electricity but also you know we've discussions around lack of space in say the north sea you know as more and more technologies vie for space in the sector but Let's let's open this question out a little bit more broadly then, shall we? What are the, the major challenges facing the offshore wind sector and how do firms overcome such a sort of challenging landscape at the moment? Danielle, I feel like you're probably best placed to answer this one. Um, it's a really good question. I would say, though, the answer probably hasn't changed much in the last 10 years or more even. Um, the, the, the key things we look at are grid access. And I would say that's certainly become more constrained over the years to the point now where there's a real focus on how do we deliver the onshore capacity in the grid that's needed to deliver the energy transition. And I would very much say that isn't just an offshore wind problem. It's certainly something that we're seeing across all technologies. I would say the second thing is environmental constraints. Um, again, this is not a new issue. We've seen it many times over many projects, but it's getting bigger or more difficult, I think, to navigate between the various constraints that you see offshore and find the best solution to have least impact on all of those different receptors. One example I would give is marine spatial planning, where you're thinking about marine um, ecology. This has been something that is we've we've generally been able to find good solutions, but it hasn't meant that every project has been successful. I think we can all point to projects over the years that have failed because of 
a particular high impact on a on a species. But I believe what we're seeing now is a, an ever increasing bar that we have to we have to meet. And you know, you can argue rightly so, but we have a choice to make between mitigating the overriding impact of climate change and being able to place these projects where there is least impact to um, environmental uh, you know, species or um, features. And that's not to say we put them anywhere, but it is something that really is becoming difficult. I would say the final thing that I would just flag at this point is going to be increasingly public acceptance we always know that visual impact of new infrastructure is difficult, but actually this time it's more about the visual impact and the, and the impact on local communities of new transmission. And that isn't directly within developer control in all circumstances, but it certainly has big potential to delay or challenge our projects. And what I would say here is it's very understandable that communities feel that, well, ask the question, why them? Why should they be the ones seeing new transmission lines and substations when actually they may not be the direct beneficiaries of the wind farm itself? And I think that's something that's really now being discussed quite widely. And it's really good that it is being discussed because I think that is one area that we really need to be on top of our game if we're going to continue to see the projects come through. You know, just going back to the start of your question there, it was, it was quite interesting the way you started with, uh, you know, the answer is about the same as it was 10 years ago, I think is what you just said. And that I, I think that's something that is being increasingly discussed, isn't it? The way that offshore technologies connect to the grid hasn't evolved and changed as we've looked to ramp up renewable technology, or at least not at the same rate that renewable technology has ramped up. And I, I guess the question is, is there a level of frustration, you know, where we've got these lofty goals for, for offshore wind as well as other uh, renewable technologies? And, you know, all, uh, developers clearly want to put this infrastructure out there, but the electricity can't go anywhere. Is that is that a frustration from a developer? It's certainly a challenge that we have to work with. I think here, the there is a be, there's been a balance that's been struck over the years between investing ahead of need, ahead of those projects that are going to come forward, and trying to find infrastructure that is so-called no regrets. So you're actually spending the money in the knowledge that you will recover the investment, compared to being absolutely certain that there's a connection agreement in place and that project will come forward when you expect it to. Now, Sitting here today, we can perhaps say that balance was in the wrong direction and we should have seen more investment ahead of need. But then on the other hand, I would say that others would argue, well, if we had done that investment and the generation hadn't shown up, customers would have been paying for assets that wouldn't have been used. So what was the right answer? I would guess today we would say that they should have done more earlier. But I, I think hindsight gives you twenty twenty vision, you know, and we'd... So we're in a position where we can make that judgment. But if we look forward, I would argue we do need to be a lot more on our front foot here, not least because offshore wind in other markets is being developed differently in terms of the transmission. There you have the TSO providing the connection and they are in a position now where they've done a lot more planning and they've got buying power. So there are going to be challenges with delivery for some of our assets because we're doing it in the same way that we designed back in the early 2000s, well, 2010s anyway. So, you know, 
let's be innovative here. Let's start thinking about the future and let's not be too bound by the rules that we designed some time ago that maybe aren't quite fit for purpose anymore. Barbara, I'm going to spin this question to you as well. We start, uh, you know, we just started talking about the, the broader challenges uh, out with what we've already touched on. Um, you know, Danielle's definitely outlined a number there. Is, is, is there anything else or do you want to make any extra points on that? And maybe just also, uh, you know, Danielle just spoke about looking to the future. You know, how, how does that outlook for offshore wind go? Yes, just building up on, on what Danielle was saying about the grid, um, definitely is something that we are a bit behind at the moment, as we see, and that's clearly perceived like a strong bottleneck, obviously. We see some positive movement as well in that direction, which together with the new uh, price point for the CFD, perhaps we give a little bit of push and boost to the industry. So we saw the Transmission Acceleration Action Plan coming up this autumn in November, and also the connection action plan that Daniel mentioned before about changing the queue mechanism for the connection. Hopefully, we're moving in the right direction as well to set some clarity about the roles of the buyer player, like the FSO as well, in how we manage the grid infrastructure development that is much needed, also from the technical perspective, because of course, as renewables start entering into the grid and there is a bigger penetration of them, that could also cause some instability to a grid that, of course, has not been designed for renewables and therefore will need some big investment in order to be able to manage uh, some not intermittent source of energy into the grid. So that's clearly something that we also need to look into in parallel of course, developing offshore wind projects and not only like all the onshore wind renewables as well, storage, solar. Storage can actually play a good role in there, um, maybe in the short term. They will not be the solution forever, but hopefully they can help in the transition by supporting the grid stabilization and acting as a synchronous um, uh, side of of the grid for the forming grid mechanism. You asked me about other bottlenecks that I see, and I think one of those is also the skill set that we need in order to deliver projects and also the grid, to be honest. Um, so there, there is a little bit of uh, investigation on what are the skills we need, how many people we need in the industry to be able to operate in offshore wind. And again, um, a recent analysis, um, um, which has been published as an offshore wind skills intelligent report, shows that we are facing a um, shortfall of people who can deliver in the industry. And if we grow, so we have been upskilling people, but not at the fast pace that we need to meet the target for 2030. So we might still be 70,000 people behind. So this is a massive gap. And there are an armor initiative in trying to reduce that gap because also the shortage of skills are, uh, especially in the area of uh, electrical engineer. Um, and technical, electrical technicians, which are key both from the offshore wind project development and on the grid side of things and on the storage, uh, if we want to use battery storage to support the grid stabilization. So it's a kind of crunch point where we need the same skill set across a number of uh, activities. So this is an area where we need to look into. And these are not the only skill set which have been identified at risk. Um, we also need people who can do good project management and deal with large projects. There are many stakeholders in, in all these projects. We need people who can handle different stakeholders, different suppliers, and most importantly, understand the project to be able to 
they risk it and make sure it runs smoothly uh, and as efficient as possible. And we will need people who can operate in the marine environment. So, for example, in that case, we can perhaps borrow people from more traditional industry like oil and gas, where, of course, they have very good experience in working in, uh, in the marine sector and with floating structure. So that reminds me about floating wind, of course. But there is a lot going on in this and, and a lot of investment as well in attracting young people and a young generation into an industry where we all believe will be a massive growth in future. Can I just come in there and support that massively? I think um, there's we often forget that these projects are delivered by people and the skills challenge that we face is huge, really, really massive. I mean, we see it today in trying to recruit on offshore consenting um, skill set where we just really struggle to find the people, both with the experience, but also who even sometimes know about the industry. I think it's curious that offshore wind has been around for so long in the UK, and yet it's still relatively unknown. And that's something on the industry to actually really be out there and visiting schools, universities, spreading the word that this is a great place to come and work uh, just just on that uh, that skill shortage we'll we'll stick on that topic clearly we've struck a chord here so i think it's it's definitely worth diving into a little bit you know the skills is something that gets brought up at these sort of offshore wind conferences any sort of like panel discussions and the like in industry when it comes to when it comes to the offshore wind sector and that shortfall of talent you know uh, barbara you mentioned recruiting from traditional sectors such as you know oil and gas now, I, I just want to know how we strike that balance, you know, of taking over experienced people that have worked have worked offshore, have worked in these marine environments, these energy uh, roles, such as in oil and gas. How do, we, how do we strike the balance between that and new recruits like students and the like, who are maybe a bit more green in the space, a little bit more sort of, like, maybe need a little bit more training in the area? And, you know, because... Uh, the the thing that strikes me is oil and gas. You know, at least from that that side of the industry, it's sort uh, of we 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 hear signals that oil and gas is going to be here beyond twenty fifty. It's gonna it's gonna you know. So we still need a, a a supply chain of talent coming through that sector as well. How much do we borrow, and how much does uh, offshore wind recruit from these uh, these sort of new people like students? Oh, it's a very good question. I'm not sure I have the answer. <laughs> But I think it has to be a combined effort across the various energy vectors. I totally agree. Oil and gas will still be there. We still need, we, we are not there yet to s- switch completely to renewable uh, source of energy. But we might need to inject some of their experience to train up uh, the new generation who might work in offshore wind. So, yeah, you're right. It's finding the right balance. And I guess it's really an effort of the combined industry to ensure we can leverage across the skills that we have, the availability of people we have, and try to push uh, in the direction we need with a combined effort of everyone, uh, all the stakeholders in the industry. And, uh, Danielle, do you have uh, any comments on striking that balance between recruiting from traditional energy sectors and bringing in new, new people? I think we need both. So this isn't an either or situation. And I would say actually that oil and gas, CCS, other technologies all face similar challenge. So there's got to be some consideration given to how do we recruit people into energy? Once you're here, you can move around, you can potentially have a great career in any given part of that overall energy landscape. But if you think about it, the offshore wind industry is looking to double the number of 
people in the UK working in it from around about 35,000 to 73,000 or more by 2030. I've seen figures that National Grid have been looking for individuals to reach around 430,000 by the similar kind of dates. It just shows the number of people who are going to be needed for the whole of the energy transition. And I agree, oil and gas will be around for longer, but people are bringing different skills here to the the different roles. You wouldn't put a brand new graduate into the same role that you would put in a skilled engineer with 25 years experience behind them. You actually need the older, uh, more experienced engineers and other disciplines to train the young people. So, and and I would say, uh, very ageist here, I wouldn't say it's just young people, it's people who have changed career path because you are actually in a, well, we are in a position where we would be seeing people with experience in other sectors come in and learn and they're relatively new as well. So they need people who are going to mentor them, who are going to educate them on the job. And I don't think we should see this, as I said, as an either or scenario. I think that was, uh, there's some really interesting points made there. Just just one more, actually, I'm going to fire at you, Danielle. And um, I might, I might be might be overstepping the mark by asking this, but I think it, I think it's quite interesting. Regardless, we we hear um, we hear at industry events that often oil and gas is seen as like a dirty word to to new students looking to get in, into the industry. As uh, as you know, public consensus has changed, and students often want to be quote unquote part of the solution. You know, the, rather than working in oil and gas, looking to this sort of new energy space. Does that make uh, does that make it easier to to recruit young people into into renewables, or is it just as much of a challenge as it is to oil and gas? I think it's fair to say that recent graduates today often have a very strong sense of purpose. They want to go into a job that chimes with their own values, and I would agree that for renewables and offshore wind, we certainly hit that mark. We are seen as, and indeed we are, a really leading industry in the energy transition. Does it help us attract great candidates? Yes, absolutely. And hopefully retain them as well, because we've got a range of interesting jobs um, that are really fulfilling and you can have a really rewarding career. But I don't think that allows us to sit back and say, oh, we will be fine. Actually, if you look at numbers, you can see that you've got to start really early. It's schools where you've got to get kids into STEM. You've got to see them take that through into university. And then you've got to see them come out of university and enter the sector. It isn't really a case that any of us can sit back and say, we'll be fine. We've got to keep the enthusiasm up and we've got to really show that career path really from the earliest age. Because I think, and maybe this is a bit too flippant, you know, if you can make a career as an influencer on YouTube, why not? And that's the kind of thing I think we're competing with. You know, there are other pathways out there that aren't energy. You know, going from from that that sort of skills shortage, overcoming that, to a, to an area of the industry that Barbara you touched on at the top of the show, and I really want to cycle back to it. I feel like I maybe I was maybe too enthusiastic in getting into the the broad stroke conversation, and I didn't linger on supply chain enough. I'm sure. Uh, the the segue here should be uh, skills are needed across the energy piece, not just in uh, offshore positions. But I want to chat to you a little bit about the the constraints on supply chain, and more importantly, you know, we spoke about it being a a global market. But 
how do we grow the UK supply chain, specifically in offshore wind? Because you often see these uh, these criticisms when you know major projects in the UK need to go overseas for maintenance or we're importing turbine components just to put them together on our shores to then put them in our waters. What do we what do we do to is there is there a way that the UK sort of gets ahead in that supply chain space to sort of lead manufacturing? Yeah, well, as part of the CFD option, for example, there is um, merit in uh, the ability of growing the UK market in terms of the supply chain. So having plans in order to be able to have local support and have, as well as Danielle was saying, having the local community engaged with the process is fundamental. So that could be a good mechanism to look at and it could be perhaps one of the non-price factors CFD that of course is part of the discussion when looking at this project process. So definitely having those incentive of uh, building new facilities there, recruit people locally, recruit from university in UK, so growing the, the skills and the ability to deliver those projects as well as the factories, for example, to build locally some of the component. Maybe it's unrealistic to think we can build everything in UK, but perhaps there are some components where we can use existing facilities and, and, and then improve them. Could be, of course, the, all the grid space. Those has to be built in UK. So this is, again, growing the supply chain here to some extent of the components of the grid facilities. So I would say it's looking at investment and maybe also support the investment locally because uh, they could be more expensive than maybe looking elsewhere and using other suppliers. But it comes with, the, with a reward. It comes with people engaged in what we're trying to achieve here maybe less resistance as well when we apply for permit and people see the benefits of having those infrastructure built could be a way forward to, to support the growth of the supply chain here. One thing is if we grow so locally is also to ensure that the quality at which you are delivering is, is still the same that you, if you were go for an existing suppliers, for example, or for an existing factories, which is well established. So it's also making sure that if we do that, we also uh, bear in mind the quality and the standard standardization of the products that we are delivering globally. Uh, so that gives reassurance to the pro on the product. You know, you just you just said the magic word when it comes to uh, supply chain uh, discussions within offshore wind. It's something that comes up time and time again, specifically in floating, but also in fixed bond. That's the word standardization. The discussion around sort of standardizing the design of turbines to make it easier for supply chain to roll these these products out as quickly as possible, um, or at least at, at a pace that's needed for industry. But is is that the solution? Is that you know it's often heralded as sort of a, an important point that we need to get to where these sort of, these turbines are standardized. But I, I'm going to put the question to both of you, so I'm going to let I'm just going to let you jump in and see who got there first. <laughs> what uh, what is is that the solution? Is standardization where where we should be heading for, or is that going to limit limit creativity in the industry, limit the uh, the amount of progress uh, progress we can make with this infrastructure? For me, it's finding the right balance between the two because now the priority seems really uh, the push and the ability to deliver and execute and install. So obviously, if that's the priority now, perhaps focusing more on the standardization will help because we start from something that is already there, is known, is reliable. We have all the various bits of the supply chain which they are there to support the deployment of a wind turbine, for example, specific model in the sea. So we know what we're doing and it's less risky. 
and it requires less investment perhaps as well. But I totally agree. It's finding the balance. We can't just we stop in there. You know, the, the industry, the renewables industry especially, has been growing massively through innovation in, um, I don't know, 20, 30 years. They keep growing and we're not near, nowhere near the end of it. We still need to push for innovation. It will reduce the cost. It will improve the performance of the machine. We can generate more energy if we have better wind turbines, for example. A better grid infrastructure would allow more stability and the ability of moving around energy in more effective way. So innovation shouldn't stop. Floating wind is still a very pretty much uh, newer um, technology. Yes, we have some pilots. Yes, there are some wind farms already in floating wind, but we still get to know the technology truly and understand what are the best platforms, what are the best setup, what is the risk in operation of floating wind. So there is still a world there with, that we need to, to discover and innovate in, and we shouldn't stop. But it's finding the right pace between the two, in my opinion. And uh, Danielle, I, I, I saw some uh, some serious thinking faces throughout that, <laughs> that conversation there. I want to see if uh, maybe do you have anything else to add to that conversation around standardization and... Uh... Its merits? I would say it depends on what you mean by standardization. I would agree with many of Barbara's points that innovation has got us to where we are today and it needs to continue. Indeed, it is continuing with the discussion in some markets around more having energy parks than just an offshore wind farm. So, incorporating solar or storage or hydrogen into the project. But standardization goes beyond just the turbine, it's about looking at best practice and efficiency in the processes that we have within the business, in the way that we construct, in the experience that we've now got and the learnings that we've built on in that um, over the over the years. What we often focus on in offshore is the turbine. I mean, rightly so in many ways. It's the single biggest component and cost part of the projects, but it isn't the only thing that we have to think about in the way we go about our business. There has been a lot of discussion, particularly in the EU, about regulating the size of turbines and tip heights. On that point, I would argue it's not the right direction. I think it's well within the control of the OEMs to decide as and when they want to bring out new platforms. Yes, there's been a lot of pressure and a race to bring out bigger and better because of cost drivers. But if they're not in that place now, they are certainly able to turn around and say no. Why do I think regulation and this isn't good? Because we can regulate or the EU can regulate within its boundary, but other markets won't. And you will see, for example, China continue to bring out bigger and more innovative, potentially, platforms. And that's where there's a risk. And I think if we really want to see the competition within the industry and innovation continuing to happen, it needs to be allowed to happen. And it shouldn't be regulated based on today's standards. We're only, what, 20 odd years old as an industry. We're actually very young, if you think about it, in terms of how long uh, gas-fired turbines have been in operation, for example, even nuclear. We've got a long way to go yet. So we're making progress, but I would say keep the innovation. That, that's an interesting point, just around regulation and uh, innovation and how the two meet. You know, often you know, of, often we see that innovation 
is quicker than legislation can keep up with, right? You know, we're looking into, let's say, carbon storage and how we want to, as an industry, ship carbon across borders to, to store. But, you know, legislation says that you can't do that because it's, it's essentially shipping waste. Now, that's obviously using an example from a different industry, but I think it, it gives an interesting point around if you regulate the height of these turbines, you you regulate the how how you roll out this infrastructure when we do get that sort of eureka moment and a breakthrough a, a new totally new way of looking at turbines or a new way of looking at this offshore assets will will legislation be able to keep up with that you know is that is that something that can happen or is it just going to be that we've maybe set set rules in stone too early i think it's an interesting point to be made barbara do you have any thoughts on that yeah as i said it's a very difficult call um for me, is really what makes sense for the industry, perhaps, at this stage. Um, and yes, by all means, I'm not against stopping the innovation. And similarly to Danielle, it's a very new uh, new industry. We still need to evolve and we need to find other solution, perhaps, to solve some of the issues we were still facing technically. But it's really, you know, trying to, perhaps, in my view, make the most out of what we have and try to speed up as much as possible, the, the deployment of renewable energy um, globally. So is, is finding that balance for me is really, um, so regulation might help to some extent. It could be like a more um, joint approach between the various players in the industry to agree on what is the next innovation we want to see because it's very much needed. Uh, to progress fast because maybe it's a problem, maybe it's a bottleneck that we see, maybe that's where we all agree we should go. So it's finding those um, various conversations and putting that in place uh, to really steer the industry in the direction that it needs. It's a still young um, industry and everyone wants to have an impact and everyone wants to contribute because as Danielle is saying, people operating in renewables, they have a strong motivation so it's really finding that, that compromise together. Do you know what? Like, like I said at the top of the show, I said we're going to hit a lot of topics. This has been a fantastic conversation, but I do think we've hit so many topics in, in not a very long period of time. So I'm going to ask you, maybe as a little cop out at the end, to help me out and tell me if you've got one key takeaway from today, what would it be? We'll start with you, Barbara. Yes, it's very difficult to, to pick up one takeaway. Um, I, I think we, with Danielle, we all agreed on the challenge of, uh, of the skills needed, which maybe, you know, amongst the various topics we talk about in the industry, maybe it's not the one we normally bring it up. We are much more focused maybe on the grid or the technical issues on the supply chain, the financial crisis. And I very much like that because it's really the fundament. If we don't have people, ultimately we can't deliver. So one takeaway for me is really to think about how we can maximize the resource pool we have in the industry across all the various stakeholders, which are university for the young generation, is developers, is manufacturers, is consultants, is construction, it's traditional oil and gas, how we can use the skill set across in the most effective way to make sure that we can do all the things that we need to do uh, in the industry. And Danielle, I'm going to spin that same question to you. Key takeaway from today. Let's hear it. There are lots of things that we've talked about, but none of them are insoluble. And we have shown over and over again that we are capable of achieving amazing things in this industry. If you look at where we've come from compared to where we are today, we've really delivered. And I firmly believe that we can continue to do so. That is a fantastic and very up 
upbeat message to end on. With that, that's the end of the third episode of Bridges and Bottlenecks. Thank you very much, Danielle and Barbara, for joining me. We've tackled some big topics within the energy transition today as the ball keeps on rolling with this series. If you've enjoyed this episode, keep an eye out on your podcast platform of choice as next time we'll be looking into hydrogen and carbon capture, utilisation and storage. Thank you very much for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.